Welcome to episode 207, got that right, of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. My name is Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd, and uh, I got my name right. Yay! So that's one week in a row. I've been messing that up, even on guest appearances. Uh, We are, of course, broadcasting here from the Pat Cave, deep within the depths of Magenta Manor, and we are, of course, brought to you by... Deadly Grounds Coffee. Once you go deadly, you don't go back. And they are a proud sponsor of the Dorkening Network, of which we are a part. And, of course, I am not here by myself. I am also joined by my co-host on the show, my co-host in life. She is the Baroness of Bordeaux, the Countess of Cabernet, the Mistress of Merlot, the Charlemagne of Chardonnay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that one works. The Viceroy of Vino. I don't know. I don't know what a girl viceroy is. Vice person. I don't know. Uh, she is also the a vice uh, Rachel. A vice Rachel. <laughs> vice Roy. Vice Rachel. Everybody loves Vice Ray. Yeah. <laughs> vice Ray Newt Gunray. I don't know. That's a different guy. But she is also the Real Housewife of Transylvania, the Queen of the Monsters, the Michael Phelps of Wine, and an honorary Lizzie. I got those out of order, but I got them all. That's what counts. Ashes Von Nightmare. Wouldn't it be really funny, like, if I just wasn't here and you were talking to yourself? I mean, that wouldn't be the first time. I talked to like, myself. You'd be like, all the and time. this is my co host. Silence. Dramatic pause. pause! Kitties yes. have dramatic pause. Yes, very dramatic pause. Uh, but we are not Calculon today. But today we uh, we are going to be discussing yet another movie you just watched for the first time. Yes. Uh, and a documentary about said movie that we both watched for the first time because it's only been out. Uh, I don't even think it's been out a year yet. But uh, we're going to be talking about the characters from Galaxy Quest from 1999. Uh, very excited. Uh, I was very pleased to uh, introduce you to this film because I thought it was a lot of fun. And we'll get into what you thought about it in a little while. But first, we have a uh, getting into character question that we tend to get into when we get into character. You're so eloquent today. <laughs> I do not have a large trunk and big great ears. I didn't say elephant. Oh, I don't know. Eloquent. Uh, so today we are asking, in the vein of our topic for today, what are some of your favorite spaceships? Spaceship! Like, oh my god, I didn't even think of that one! <laughs> Charlie Day's Benny. I can build a spaceship! Spaceship! Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go back and forth a couple of times? I mean, we can we can, we can, can do it. I, I have, like, I have three. Well, now I have four, because you men- just mentioned one. So we'll do and three and like, an ah. honorable mention. We'll do that. How's okay. that? Okay. Okay, so I'll go first. I'll pick one. Um, one of my favorite ships of all time is the Klingon Bird of Prey. Uh, we get to see this on display, obviously, in the original Star Trek series, and most prominently, I think, I mean, I'm not a huge Star Trek person, I do enjoy the original movies with the original cast, but uh, most prominently we get to see this in my favorite Star Trek film, Star Trek for The Voyage Home, because the Enterprise has been destroyed, spoilers, and they have to go back in time, and they are able to whip this thing around the sun at warp 10, or... 10 times the speed of light. For those of you who are unaware, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. So 10 times the speed of light would be 1,863,000 miles per second. 
So they were able to achieve that speed in a Klingon bird of prey in a ship, which I guess, you know, they were fairly well acclimated to it. Uh, I guess the only thing that they were having an issue with was Scotty was having a tough time with the food, the replicator, I think. I don't think it made decent nachos. But, uh, yeah, that's my that's my number four. Okay, so my number four, uh, so we're doing four, three, two. How are we doing this? Three, this two, is what honorable mention, one. Okay, so but you said number four. Yeah. So that threw me off. You can't you even did. follow your own goddamn Listen, direction. I am sleep. I got my name I mean, right. You at want least me to get numbers? You got your name correct. Listen, I okay, went almost so five minutes without three, messing up. Three, three, number three is I don't remember the spaceship name, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But it's the spaceship from the Disney movie Xenon, Girl of the Twenty First Century. I have no clue. Yeah, what you're you talking wouldn't. About. You wouldn't. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, though, like let's be best friends. Seriously. So those movies were amazing. I know there was Girl of the Twenty First Century and Xenon, the sequel. Ha, get it? It's funny because it's both Z's. Uh, but the ship was so freaking cool. And I remember watching these movies being like, oh, man, it's this whole. So the the outside of the ship, nothing super spectacular. It's like two ro- almost like rotating wheels. But it's this whole society in there. And I really loved her room, kind of like the bunk space that she had. It was kind of, you know, futuristic and colorful. And the whole thing was just very futuristic and colorful. Uh, And then they had the concert in space. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know, boom, boom, boom. Make my heart go zoom, zoom. My supernova girl. Like, that's just awesome. I want to go to a concert in space on a spaceship of Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. So I'm looking at the picture. I don't see the name for it either. Yeah, I couldn't find it, but like it has everything. It's its own ecosystem. You know, people have jobs on there. You know, pe- they went to school. This they is had a common cafeteria. Design. But but I mean, like, it, but it was just so cool. Oh no at no the no! Time. I'm, I'm I'm agreeing. And like with you. looking at it, trying to figure out what are some of my favorite spaceships. Because let's face it, I'm not as well versed in the subject of sci-fi as some other people. And I thought of this one and I was like, oh my God, like my friends and I were obsessed with this when it came out and it just always looks so cool. And looking back on pictures and stuff, like it still holds up. It still looks really fucking cool. Almost has that, um, remember like how the Jetsons were quote futuristic from the far off year of 2002. You know, but you know, it, it was like the, I forget what year this movie came out. I should probably look it up. But I think it was well, like it came out in the 21st century, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, January 23rd, 1999, 1999, the so, late, the late 1900s, <laughs> the late 1900s. Oh, Christ. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I just I've always thought it was cool. Looking at pictures, it definitely holds up. I'm really hoping this movie is on Disney Plus because I really want to watch it now. So back over to me. Back over to you, Patsy. Uh, number three, two, number two, <laughs> before my honorable mention. Counting is easy. I number good. Um, I'm going to go with the Event Horizon, uh, mainly because I actually just ordered that off the... Uh, the the shout factory 
super special edition. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, because it's amazing, and the scenes that from that take place inside the spaceship are utterly mind blowing. You've never seen I, it. That's another film that I haven't seen. That I have probably going to have to cover on the show. Yes, I have only seen it once. But if you have seen the ship. Uh, and you have seen the film, you understand why I think it's one of the most fascinating ships in all of science fiction. So I'm going to go with the Event Horizon. Fun fact, Event Horizon is the name of, is the term used for as far as you can go before being sucked into a black hole. Like the Event Horizon is like the very edge of the gravitational pull of a black hole, so that's what an event horizon is. It's, so. the, it's the horizon before the event happens? Yes. I mean, essentially, yes. So back over to you for number 12. <laughs> so for number 42, I have, again, it's a spaceship that I couldn't find the name of. I don't think it's ever mentioned. But the spaceships from Arrival... No, they don't. I don't think they really name them. I mean, they don't really. I mean, I'd have to name watch the again. aliens either. But yeah, they do. They. I'm trying to remember. Heptapods or something. Well, that's the name that the the humans give them. Right. I also but, like, haven't read the book by Ted Chiang. So there aren't like specific. You know, like we are known as as this, but Abbott and Costello. Yeah, but the the whole film, I I actually. Xenon's on Disney Plus. Oh, sweet! And the guess he's gonna get an education. And oh, the third one. Xenon Z three. Z three. Brought to you by Zima. Uh, Tastes like zit. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I I feel like a the film Arrival is kind of what's the word I'm looking for. Good. I want to say poignant. But I'm not sure if that's that's the word that I want. It's confusing for, too. Well, I mean, but but I mean, like especially for the time that we're in right now, where everybody's struggling to kind of find their own i their own answer to the same problem, and no one's really cooperating. Well, that and the fact that it's not so much the fact that they're faced with an unknown, but how they deal with it. You know this this clearly peaceful species but but anyways that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the spaceships so they're like these pods that just appear on earth one day and they're egg-shaped for the most part kind of elongated elongated egg-shaped and nobody knows how they got there and there's no propellers there's no wings there's nothing visibly keeping these these pods these ships afloat yeah no visible and yet doors they're no propulsion massive systems. right yeah and yet they're massive and what they look like on the inside they are so simple yet so effective because of the way that it's it's protecting yet housing the life that's inside mm. yeah again it's like a whole ecosystem but it's just the fact that you know the the unknown factor. How are they staying afloat? You know how much do they weigh? Because I know how can it withstand Earth's gravity? I mean, I know how we fly. We have propellers. We have wings. We have jet you know, engines. Right. You know things that are visibly keeping something afloat. 
but there's nothing there. There, there's, there's, there's nothing. I mean, it could be that the the uh, matter that comprises the hull of the ship is some sort of like uh, using some sort of magnetic levitation. Like we have trains that do that, magnetic levitation trains. Um, but like they don't go into space or anything. Um, maybe there's some way that they control the the gravity field. I don't know. There's a, there's but a lot the, of there's a lot of questions, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of plausible answers. But there's no specific answer that we know of. Again, I haven't read the book. I feel like I should. I don't think it's going to go into that detail. But yeah, but I don't know if it because it's not so much based on that. It's the it's the interactions. It's right, not yeah, the they actual don't care sci-fi aspect. Ships. Of, you know, no, it's, it's the not the technical language. aspects. It's exactly. Um, but I just think that those those ships are so cool and very unique in design. You know, yeah. Because there's, there's not a lot of bells and whistles. Because typically when you think of sci-fi and you think of spaceships, you think of a lot of like fun designs and lights and colors. And you know, well, even this the, weird idea of what the future is going to look like. The Manda Chiwan ship from Fifth Element that appears to Luke Perry in the 20s or 30s is very similar of a design, but like you said, like instead of just being like this flat gray egg, like it has all kinds of like, you know, adornments and ornamentations on the outside and it's gold and ostentatious. Um, It's not just like smooth stone. But I think that was kind of there to evoke some of like the old Neolithic sites all around the world, you know, where you see all these like stone, like huge stone spheres sitting in the middle of like a swampy jungle like how did they get there and they've been there for 2000 years yeah so anyways that's that's my choice for number 55 so for number 912 uh, my honorable mention i'm going to go with a ship that i have not mentioned and a ship that uh from a film that you need to see is one of my favorite films of all time. Although I have not watched it in quite some time, I do own it, uh, and it's on Disney Plus, I believe. Um, it is the ship from Flight of the Navigator. Um, mm. I love the fact that this ship can change shape. It's also like I remember that it crashed into the power lines. And all the government guys were like, "We don't know how to move it." And one guy's like, "Yeah, watch this," and he just kind of like nudges it with his hand a little bit and the thing just started floating down the street like it was so light and so just it was like a cloud like if you were to like blow on a puff of smoke and watch it like float down the street Um, but it could also go underwater and as we learned from Futurama which somehow did not make my list because we're only going four um, you know that when they were underwater and they're like, oh, we're under 500 atmospheres of pressure. And Leela says, how many atmospheres can the ship take? And the professor says, well, it's a spaceship, so I'd say anywhere between zero and one. What we do see this whole awesome underwater sequence in uh, Flight of the Navigator. So uh, clearly this ship was designed to handle uh, all sorts of different planets that it might encounter. So that's my honorable mention. And number one has to be one of the most iconic uh, ships in all of science fiction uh, you know may not look like much but she's got it where it counts talking of course the Millennium Falcon the YT 
uh, series freighter, uh, Carillion freighter. Um, just such a nice ship. The uh, you know we talked about this with uh, with Drew, and you know the the cockpit on the side of the ship really shouldn't work, but it just it does. It mm-hmm. does, and I love it. And uh, I'm a huge fan of the Millennium Falcon. So your uh, honorable mention and number one. Okay, so my honorable mention, I'm trying to think of how I want to do this. So I'll, I'm going to do honorable mention, and then number one is part A and part B. They go together, though, and you'll see. Okay. So honorable mention is Benny's spaceship from the Lego movie. You know, the spaceship that he gets really, really super excited when they finally, they're like, hey, we can build a spaceship. And they look at Benny, can and Benny's like, I can, I can build a spaceship. And he goes crazy. Spaceship! 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 Like, probably one of the best parts of that film. Uh, But anyways, yeah, so that's fun. And you could buy... I mean, because of course, Lego was going to profit off of their film in It's a two-hour commercial. Well, it is. But you can buy the spaceship. like, And it's called Benny's Spaceship. And it's the spaceship that he builds. And it's definitely built of, like random shit in right. addition to the Star Wars and I mean, it's uh, you know the spaceship that he builds to help save the day towards the end of the movie so that's a really fun one so my number one part A and B so part B is Eagle 5 from Spaceballs because mm-hmm. it's a fucking Winnebago that can go to plaid it's like a Winnebago the Winnebago doesn't go to plaid well I mean like it does go super does fast go when super they put fast. in the liquid Schwartz. It does go super fast. We just maybe it does. We just don't see it. Well, they okay. They don't go to plaid, but the spaceship, my number one A, does go to plaid in order to try to catch them, and that's Spaceballs one. Yes, Mega Maid. Yes, it can go from suck to blow. That's true. And so. It also turns into a giant maid and takes all of Dick Van Patten's air. Yes. Poor Dick Van Patten. That's a good list. I tried list. to pick ones that I knew you weren't going to choose. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, some of them are kind of low-hanging fruit because obviously the Millennium Falcon and pretty much any Star Wars ship. I want to do one Star Trek, one Star Wars. You know, I'm not as well, I'm not a huge fan of Star Trek. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, I know the, um, I was going to call it the Millennium Enterprise. <laughs> and that is not it. That is not correct. Please don't hurt me. Uh, the... Star Trek Enterprise. Star it's just Trek. called the Enter Starship. Yeah, just the Enterprise. These Starship, are the voyages the of the Inter- Starship Enterprise. Starship Enterprise. Star okay. Trek was literally what they were doing. Well, I, I, <laughs> it should have been called like Fuck Trek because that's all that that's all that Kirk wanted to do. Well, anyways, obviously the Enterprise is iconic. And there are several. I mean, the Death Star, the Millennium Falcon, Board obviously. Cube. Any of the, you An know. X Wing, a Fire Spray, the Razor Crest. Right. That we, the Fire Spray is Boba Fett's ship. The Razor Crest is from The Mandalorian, if you were unfamiliar. The TIE Fighters. Yep. The twi- I think the TIE Fighters might be my favorite. There's a bunch of different kinds there's TIE Fighters, TIE Bombers, TIE Interceptors. Like, if they have the flat, uh, hexagonal wings they are tie fighters if they have the pointed uh wings like the wings that go forward like to almost to a point those are tie interceptors they're built for speed 
and then if they have like the weird, um, almost like C-shaped wings, and they have two cockpits side by side, mm-hmm. those are tied bombers. And then of course there's the new ones, the Sith ones that uh, you see in uh, Rise of Skywalker because they were looking for more toys. So, but I mean, and that's just the movie Star Wars. Oh yeah, universe. you got Mon there's Calamari cruisers, banded universe. Like there's hammerheads. so many, so many different iconic ships from the Star Wars universe. Battlestar Galactica, Firefly, like. I, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know I'm those unfamiliar. either. Well, I think the Firefly one is called Serenity. Yeah, the Serenity. Oh, that's see, that's I didn't. I haven't watched that, so I don't know. But I mean, like, I haven't watched Battlestar Galactica. But there's tons and tons of different ships. You could count the, uh, the what's his name, the police box, the TARDIS. Like that could be counted because the S in TARDIS stands for space, time, in a relative dimension, and space. Like, that thing travels space and time. Carl Sagan's Spaceship of the Imagination from Cosmos. Mm. Like, I mean, we're just doing sci-fi stuff. We haven't even touched base on iconic actual spaceships and shuttles oh, and what have Challenger, you. The Challenger, the Endeavor. You know, there's... There's so many. But we want to hear from you. Yeah, tell us yours. What are some of your favorite spaceships? I feel like that's a question that, that that's not asked enough like out what's of your favorite dinosaur right like what's like, your favorite spaceship adults don't have these kind of conversations that we need to start we do so i want to know what's your favorite dinosaur and what's your favorite spaceship yeah so uh we'll be right back and we're going to be talking some galaxy quest and uh, we're going to get ash's reaction to uh, seeing this for the first time so we'll be right back after these messages Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, Get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, what's up? I'm Amy Stolte. And this is James Thomas. We are from Battle Star Wars. And you're listening to the Throwdown Thursday podcast. of the galaxy a civilization is under siege we are all that is left they've searched the universe for a leader stay tuned for scenes from next week's galaxy quest never give up never surrender you will save us what they got never give up 
I never surrender. We're struggling TV actors. You are our last hope. Where's my limo? Okie dokie. And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away. We are actors, not astronauts. You are our protectors. That was a hell of a thing. Now, Laredo, take us out. You gotta move to the right. Would you sit your ass down? You wanna drive this to... Acting like heroes. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding. May not be enough. They look like little children. Hi, little guy. Oh, darn. DreamWorks Pictures presents Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Galaxy Quest. You're just gonna have to kill him. We'll go for the mouth to throw his vulnerable spots. It's a rocket that not any vulnerable spots. And we are back. That was, of course, the trailer for 1999's Galaxy Quest. Now, Ashes, you just got to see this for the first time the other day. I did. And what did you think? What were, what were some of your takeaways? So, not having seen really any Star Trek or of the Star Trek films or anything, I know what I know through pop culture. And you can definitely see the, the homage, the resemblance of the two. You know, it's almost like a, I don't want to say parody, but... It's a simultaneous parody and love letter. Right. And I loved it. I really, I mean, you see the influence of other sci-fi films in it as well. So it's not just, I mean, the, the dynamic of the crew is obviously definitely based off of Star Trek. But, you know, some of the outside influences, some of the interactions are definitely influenced by other sci-fi films. And I, I loved it. I, I mean, the cast was perfection. Like, it, it's very difficult trying to pick a favorite character of this film. Oh, I have my favorite. Because they're all so fucking good, and they all kind of have their moments where they shine. Um, but, I mean, you have, you have Tim Allen at the height of his powers, 1999, mm-hmm. even though his uh, home improvement had just been canceled. Like, it ran through 1999, but he also had Toy Story 2 that year. He also had the Santa Claus coming up. He also, and those two or three sequels, I think there was two sequels to that. You know, obviously, there's 27 Toy Story movies, but, like, Now there are, but You know, he had, like, the Christmas with the Cranks. He had all these different movies. Like, he was really branching out, but, like, this was really the height of his, his power and his stardom. Um, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, who was just phenomenal, Tony Shalhoub, uh, a very young Sam Rockwell, one of the first things that he did. I mean, I say that knowing that Ninja Turtles was the first thing that he did 10 years prior, but Sam Rockwell wasn't like an overly well-known actor at the time. Uh, Daryl Mitchell, uh, Missy Pyle, uh, Jed Rees, who you'll know from uh, Deadpool, he was uh, one of the bad guys that recruited uh, Wade into the Super Soldier program. Justin Long, one of his first 
uh, his very first film. Yeah, and he was when we watched the documentary. He talked about how he got into his character because there was like there was talk about cutting that whole him and his friends out. Well, and I'm really glad that they didn't because it it really touches base on the fandoms out there yes. and how dedicated some of these fans are and you know the the belief that anything is possible the thin line between fan and fanatic right um because like he had that like super technical question that you know from earlier in the in the film but like he talked about how he based his performance on you know what kids his age would have been watching you know marty mcfly in um in, in in Back to the Future, uh, you know, um, I always want to call him Alex Keaton, Michael J. Fox, every fucking time, um, and mean, Chris Chris Farley from when Chris Farley used to do his interview show on on um, Saturday Night Live, like the time he interviewed Paul McCartney, and he's like, do you, do you, do you remember when they had that song, and like if you played it backwards, it said Paul is dead, that was a hoax, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I, I didn't really die. You know, and it's like, did you, did you ever see Terminator? Like, it's just he's basing it on those two characters. And like, you can see that in uh, in the scene where they're communicating. He's communicating with Tim Allen's character, uh, Nesmith, over like the long range little walkie talkie dealies that they have. And he's like, what's your name? And he's like, uh Brandon <laughs> and it's like watching that it's like oh you know that that's really interesting that's how that kid would probably react but then you watch the documentary uh never surrender and he talks about like yeah I channeled you know Michael J Fox as are you telling me it's 825 you know like at least he's not whiny like Jay Baruchel mm, this is true who I will just a quick side tangent. Just watch the 2014 RoboCop remake, and you can put him in a suit and give him a kind of scruffy beard that you have to fill in with marker and coffee grounds. But Jay Baruchel always sounds like ba Jay Baruchel. Oh man, we're definitely gonna. Oh, we're gonna you know get him now. He's Go hiccup. get him. Like he's he's always hiccup. Go get him, RoboCop. Oh man, we're gonna remove all of his organs and turn him into a robot machine. Yeah, you know he's he reminds me if we could have watched uh, Rick Moranis as Lewis Tully go through puberty. I'm sure he he's a fine actor and I'm sure he's a delightful person. It's just something about his voice. But yeah, but anyways. Uh, yeah, getting back to uh, Galaxy Quest, I really feel like watching the documentary the day after we watched the film really helped, you know, kind of cement some of the things we were talking about because it wasn't just, oh, we had such fun making this movie. Everybody was so great. Oh, the script was great. Craft services was so good. They had like these little little sandwiches that were just, oh, utterly delightful. Uh no, it was more like you got to talk to some of the fans. You got to see people at conventions. You got to see these like really dedicated cosplayers, like in some of the stuff that they went through. And like you know, it was really interesting getting to see this behind the scenes stuff. And I would love to see some sort of Blu-ray at some point. You know, some box set with both of them together, like that. That would be fun with like some. 
behind the scenes stuff and because fun bonus features. As good and as fun as this movie was, it underwent so many changes. Like Harold Ramis was supposed to direct and like he had all these plans and they went so far down the line and he's like, well, you know, maybe we'll cast. They had like a dozen different people they were going to cast as Nesmith instead of uh, Tim Allen. Like Robin Williams. Alec Baldwin. Kevin Klein. You know, some of these people I, I couldn't declined. so much see at this point in their career playing that kind of character. But I mean, I could see Alec Baldwin only I could see Alec Baldwin doing it now. You never saw Canteen Boy on Saturday Night Live with him and Adam Sandler then. Um, yes, I have. Then, so you need to check yourself. Then you would have realized how funny he could be. Make me laugh, Canteen Boy. <laughs> you want to play Truth or Dare? You know what I hate? Underpants. <laughs> like, he was really funny in that. I mean, most of his roles were very serious roles. You know, Glengarry, Glenn Ross, Hunt for Red October. You know, so... Yes, but it's it's different being funny for a skit and being funny for a film. No, I, I agree, but I thought he could do it, especially with Harold Ramis at the helm. Um, some of the people, because they, they were looking for people who could be both comedic and action starry. So, like, Bruce Willis's name was tossed around at one point. Um, Bill Murray. Like, there was a ton of different people that they were talking about. So this film could have gone in a very, very different direction. But with the cast that they chose, everyone just made sense. Right. Like, they didn't want Sigourney Weaver because they didn't want anyone who had prior experience. Well, because experience. she was iconic. Like, she's Ellen Ripley. Right. Like, she is Ellen Ripley. And at that point, they had done three Alien films. I mean, she had died at the end of Alien 3, spoiler, uh, but the movie's been out since the late 1900s. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start saying that all the time now to make, the people, feel, make people feel old and uncomfortable. Um, yeah, she had, done, she had played Ellen Ripley three times. You know, she had been... Um, you know, Alien 1 in 79, Aliens in 84, I think. But I think that her casting was so brilliant because Gwen DeMarco, who plays Lieutenant Tawny Madison in the the show of the film, it, like, this, it, this whole film is so meta. Yeah. And I love it. I, I, everyone's in on the joke, clearly. But I actually really particularly love her casting decision because, you know, she wasn't playing Ellen Ripley. She was playing far from Ellen Ripley. And you can definitely tell the influence behind Gwen DeMarco's character. You know, this Hollywood starlet who is known pretty much for this one role. The She's, breathy blonde with the big boobs. Right. She has more to offer, but nobody takes her up on it. And she gets angry because like her, her one job is to reiterate what the computer is saying. Just repeat. And then 
to ask the you know Nesmith asks the question, she asks the computer, the computer answers, answers to her. It's says. almost like you know it would make more sense if she was translating something. Yes, but but it's not. Everything's in the same language. Everything's in English. But that's her only job. Her only job is to reiterate what the computer is saying, and she stands up for herself. And she's like, you know, at, when they're at the table when in space, and she's yes. like, this is my only job. Like, let me do something. Let me be useful. I don't have. Have any other skills on this? This is what I do. This is what I know. Like, so let's let's just go. We'll just go character by character. Let's because I mean, like, there are so many good. Like I said, it's very difficult trying to pick a favorite. Yeah. So we'll just we'll go by because there's so the, many good characters. The billing. The cat, okay. We'll go by the billing on IMDb. So first okay. one is Tim Allen. As Jason Nesmith. Who, you know, so in the TV show, he plays Commander Peter Quincy Taggart. Yes. Commander Taggart. And he really embraces this role. I am the commander. Like, he insists that people call him the commander, even though in real life, he's just a guy. And he's the only one who lives in a nice house. And he definitely has the, uh, like, Captain Kirk like qualities about him. Well, there's and there's even a uh, like a reference to Shatner appearing on Saturday Night Live, where like they have a skit where he's at a convention and a bunch of people are asking him questions, and they uh, they are just like he's just like guys, it's just a TV show. Like get a life, you know, and you see that with uh, with Justin Long at one point. Well, the scene when uh, Tim Allen as Jason Nesmith at the convention in the beginning, he goes into the bathroom. He he's he's in the men's room and he overhears the conversation of of you know some fans, like a couple random kids, you know, just just saying how how sad it was that you know he was still hanging on to this character and. You know, hasn't really done anything else, and that's it's like the kid in town who was really good at sports in high school. That actually happened to William Shatner. Yes, at a Star Trek convention in 1986, and that so that whole scene was based off of something real. And when you put it into that perspective, it's really sad. I mean, like it's sad in the film, but the fact that it actually happened to somebody, it's really sad. Because in Hollywood, sometimes you are only known for one thing. And it's not your fault. It's just it's just the the nature of the beast. It's just how Hollywood is. And, you know, a lot of times, especially things that have a specific fandom following. So like a Star Trek, like like a Game of Thrones, even, you know, this, like you said, rabid fan base. That's a really good term to use, you know, followers who will follow you to the end of the earth. You know, obviously you're going to make a living cashing in on that as much as you possibly can. I think it's smart. You know, a lot of times people have a difficult time shaking loose of what they're known for. Yeah. It's like I'm known for being X person and obviously I'm not that person in real life. That's just a character I play. But when people see me, they equate that with X. 
Like I am X. Like so often, and whenever they don't even know I'm the real and trying name. to right, so it's like you know, it, it makes you know this actor feel like he's one note because whenever he's in something else, so even if this actor is trying to do other things, trying to branch out, trying to not be pigeonholed as one thing, people are like, oh, he's still X, and it can end a career. So uh. you know the fact that people you know want to kind of relish in their careers and take into you know hold on to a specific character a specific thing that they did for so long especially like, if like, it's I get iconic it. i get it like, right, like you know, everyone has bills to pay everyone needs to make money so i i get it well it's it and it's this you know almost sense of entitlement for a fan base where it's like yeah you were this super iconic character what have you done lately you know, right. like, you know, look at somebody like Ian McDiarmid, like, name something else that he was in aside from Star Wars. Like, you know, it's it's almost impossible to do. Um, but, you know, your story about uh, Shatner it made me think. It's like, oh, yes, 1986, where if you wanted to hear overhear strangers talking shit about you, you had to be conveniently in the same bathroom as opposed to the internet, the internet yeah. where every dipshit with a keyboard has an opinion about why you're terrible. But, but I really enjoyed the character arc of Jason Nesmith. Yeah. He, you know, someone who in the beginning he was like, you know, I'm the commander. I'm the leader. You all would be nothing without me. And goes through a learning experience where he realizes in actuality... I would be nothing without my crew. Right. You know, the crew the captain is only as good as the the crew that he's with. Right. And it not not the other way around. No, I mean we'll take we'll we'll see, you know, in real life later this year, you know, we've seen it actually hundreds of times with you know, sports guys, but again, we'll see it this year. We'll see if Tom Brady's really as good as a, a captain as he leads a new crew. But, I mean, we've seen it with guys like, you know, just off the top of my head, Bryce Harper, who is, you know, unanimous rookie of the year, MVP at, at 19 years old, 20 years old. He goes to the Phillies, and they're absolutely terrible. It's like, yeah, got to have a good crew, and you got to be a good leader. Just because you have skill and talent doesn't mean anything. Like, Spock was never a great commander because he had no emotion. Like, he would do everything by the book and be, like, this is exactly the way the book says we're supposed to do things. But that's what set Kirk apart was he had that advice when he's like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go with my gut. Next up, we talked a little bit about her already, but Sigourney Weaver as Gwen DeMarco. And one of the things I liked about this was they actually gave her fake boobs to really accentuate you know the the ripped uniform, or like mm-hmm. as we see uh, at the end, the low cut uniform. And Sigourney fought to be on this because, like we said, you know she was iconic as Ellen Ripley, and they didn't want to cast her because they really didn't want anybody who had experience with this type of thing before, because they were going for a semi serious but comedic. It was punchy. Yeah. Like it was really punchy. So obviously there are some serious parts. There are the whole film has a lot of heart, but there are some parts more than others that you yeah. you really feel it in the room. 
And, you know, I love that she was cast. I absolutely love it. Oh, she was great. Because it's such a far cry from Ellen Ripley. And I think she wanted to do that because she could, I mean, if you've seen her in anything else that she's done, you know she's a brilliant actor. And I loved that. I, I don't remember when this movie came out, but she was in a film called America's Sweethearts with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And they oh, play was... con women. Shortly after that, I believe. I think it was around this time because, yeah. again, she plays someone who is, you know, uh, big boobs, cleavage showing, trying to survive solely on her appearance. 2001, Heartbreakers. Okay, so, so, oh, Heartbreakers. That's what it's called. Yes, Heartbreakers. Um, it's a really good movie. I think, is it Rob Lowe? No, not Rob Lowe. Um, the other guy, who's kind of like Rob Lowe. Chad Lowe? No, not Chad Lowe. Not his brother. Um, oh, God. What's his name? He's a guy. He's done some other stuff. Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta from well, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe, R-L. Ray Liotta, R-L. Wow. Rob is three letters. Ricky Ray Lake. Three letters. D- d- okay, Ricky Lake is uh, RL. That's just a completely no, RL Stein. No, you're not getting it. It's an easy mistake to make. They could they could play brothers. Like they kind of look alike. What? No, they don't. And it was also Gene Hackman and Jason Lee. Okay, why don't you just go fucking count, okay? Go go in the corner and count while I'm talking. I'm sorry, but Ray Liotta and Rob Lowe do not look the same. But I mean, like, they look like I'm they Ray could play, they could play like, Chantix. cousins. They could play, like, second cousins or something. Maybe third cousins. They could be related. I mean, aren't we all? Uh, Rob Lowe, <laughs> Ray Liotta, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. It, easy mistake. Easy mistake. <laughs> go count anyways um i just yeah I, I i love sigourney weaver in this in this character you know playing a caricature of the way women were portrayed in the sci-fi films like uhura you know now in the early star trek you know as groundbreaking as it was it was also still several steps back. You know, yeah, it also so. came out in 1966, oh, I think? Right. So, I mean, they did do a lot of good with that series. Like having a black actress? Well, and the first interracial kiss yes, on yeah, television. With her and, uh, her and Shatner. You know, but she was also objectified. Yeah, well, I mean, Nichelle Nichols was... Uh, I mean, still is. Uh, I mean, she's fucking good, gorgeous, good-looking woman. But, but what like, I'm saying they definitely... is, she was there specifically to be eye candy, right? Like they have, like, oh, look at this. You know, she's exotic because she's, you know. And then you had Uhura. I mean, I'm not Uhura. Um, George Takei Sulu, who is Japanese, you know. And then Chekhov, uh, George, uh, not George Takei. She's. I just said that. Um, is it Walter Ray Liotta? Ka- Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, who was supposed to be Russian, but was not Russian at all. You know, so, like, they tried to throw in, you know, some diversity, diversity and, and random ethnicities. 
no. And like I said, I, I give it all the credit in the world for what it was at the time. But it still played into stereotypes. It still mm-hmm. played into, you know, objectifying women. Well, that's why I kind of com- compared you know, her to Uhura because Uhura would, you know, she would be the one who was translating. She'd hear something in her earpiece and then she would like, this is what they just said, you know, like as but they took it the next step further where she was literally just repeating what the computer said. It's like, yeah, we can all hear it. Um, and she proved that she had the ability to act, you know, comedically with both Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're opposite Bill Murray, like, you have to stay on your toes. There is no Dana, only Zool. Mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, I can definitely see the influence in her character. But I really liked how her character was trying to not only play into those stereotypes, but she was also really sick of those stereotypes. Like, I'm playing into this character, you know, again, for the same reason that Jason Nesmith was playing into his character. You know, it makes me money. It's something that I'm known for. This is what people expect of me. But at the same time, I'm, I'm more than just the, what, six paragraph or six page expose paragraphs in tv guide and most of it was about her boobs right well she uh i'm talking uh sigourney at this point like when she was talking about it in the documentary she was just like she was all smiles she was like oh yeah you know i used to love stealing the wig i'd wear the wig home like i'd wear the fake boobs home and like I think, well, I mean, she's an actor. She likes being able to become another person. Right, but what I'm saying is and she... And I'm, I'm fairly certain she probably took it home to role play with her husband. Well, maybe, but she was just like, she relished being able to play this type of role. And it's such a far cry from her Ellen Ripley character. Ripley was so smart. So smart. And if they just had listened to her in the first place... If we break quarantine, we could all die. You hear me, Florida? You know? Georgia, so Texas? I think it was nice to, you know, to her, for her to play something, you know, play a character that... It's not that she wasn't smart. She just didn't have to be smart. Kind of defied the convention of what she normally played in science fiction. Yes. Because we've seen her in other science fiction and horror science fiction, you know, like... Uh, the Defenders and the Cabin in the Woods and uh, what's the other one? Paul. And, you know, we learn like she's another one who has a really cool character arc because she learns as well as everyone else learns that she's a value, valuable member. That's the way not not value. Maybe I should go count in the corner. She's a valuable member of the team. Right. You know, she's she's worth more. Like, she's there for more than just reiterating what the computer says. Right. So let's move on now to Alan Rickman's character, who was my favorite because I am a huge fan of Alan Rickman. He, this is one of my favorite characters, I have to say. Um, as Alexander Dane, who also... Sir Alexander Dane. Dr. Lazarus. Um his catchphrase and you could definitely tell that like you know this is somebody that hates their catchphrase and hates people running up to them on the street and like eh, 
by Grabthar's hammer. You know, and he hates it. Which is a far cry from Tim Allen's character, who relishes in the fact that yeah, never people, give up, never surrender. You know, people quote him, at him, to him. But this is a guy who is like, I was a serious actor. I took this thinking that it would be like a springboard to something else. And, and it wasn't. This has been the only thing people know me for. I live in a shitty little apartment with laundry all over it. Like, I have to wear this ridiculous thing on my head. You know, this weird fish-looking prosthetic. And he was so good. He was so good. And you get to see some of the stuff in the... A little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff. Because, unfortunately, the documentary came out uh, long after he passed away. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of people reminiscing about him. There was a little bit where the director was making a uh, like a little video for his kids... You know, and he's like, oh, here's Alan. Alan, say hi. And he's like, look at this ridiculous thing your father makes me wear on my head. I shall destroy him. Alan Rickman is so cheeky in his own way. He's not, I'm going to beat you over the head funny. But he has these little nuances and these little things, the tone in his voice. Like, he's he's funny, but he's smart about it. It's Christmas, Theo. The season of miracles, you know. Um <laughs> There's a, a an instance where, and it was the only day, because this was made by DreamWorks. So this was uh, DreamWorks SKG, which was Spielberg, Katzenberg, and Geffen. And at the time, uh, Spielberg was only on set for one day, unless I misheard that. Um, and the day he was on set was the day that they were doing the big emotional scene between... Uh, Jason and uh, Mathazar, while he's being tortured and Jason has to admit, like, we aren't heroes, like, these aren't historical documents. They're episodes of a TV show that you've based your entire culture upon. And, um, you know, Tim Allen has to do some real emoting and real acting and real, like, depth of, you know, soul type stuff. And he really gets it, and, like, everybody's, like, really moved, because it's an emotional scene. And, like, Alan Rickman said something like, oh, he f- it seems like he finally, like, experienced acting or something, like, because he was just so dry, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, Jason Long, uh, Justin Long tells a story about how he was doing a play and had he started it early, he could have like been in the play with Alan Rickman, but like Rickman was leaving as he was coming on and Rickman left him a, a nice little card in his dressing room with like this nice flowing calligraphy that said, fuck you on it. But like inside was a very nice personal note, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's just who he was. And like, you can see that even in his, you know, his time with Harry Potter, like some of the stuff he says, like some of his deliveries, you know, like you were saying, like he has this very cheeky, dry British wit to mm-hmm. him. And he definitely brings that to Dr. Lazarus and, you know, Sir Alexander Dane. And like we see him the whole film. He hates saying that phrase by Grabthar's hammer and then I will avenge you or by well, Grabthar's you know. I'm a Shakespearean actor. I played and Richard the Third. What you want me to say? This is what I'm known for, and he didn't 
want to do a sci-fi film. Apparently, he loathed sci-fi. It just was not his genre. But he was so taken by the script of this because he could kind of identify with Sir Alexander Dane. You know, the fact that he was pigeonholed a lot for being villains. Like, when you think of Alan Rickman, you probably think of a character that he played, you know... Uh, that the was Sheriff rather, of Nottingham. You know, that was rather Hans villainous. Gruber, Severus Snape. You know, I mean, granted, Severus Snape uh, had the best intentions. Spoilers. We we didn't know that. He for, did. I mean, he did, obviously. And he melded that into his performance. But we uh, we get to see we get to see his you know, real emotive side um, when he meets one of the, uh, the, the therm- what what does Tim Allen call them? Termites? The termites, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, and he... The thermians, he, yeah. but yes, termites. He ends up, uh, like, one of them is, like, glued to him. He's like, oh, I'm, you know, I've studied everything you've done. He's like, bye, grab that. He's like, don't, don't say it. Just mm-hmm. don't say it. Don't. So he moves on and... As you know, that that character ends up getting shot, and as he's dying, Alan Rickman looks at him and probably says the line for the first time in his career with real passion and real like emotion. He meant every single word. By Grabthar's hammer, by the whatever other thing he said, you will be avenged. And then he goes out and starts whooping some ass, which mm-hmm. is not something that Alan Rickman is known for. He is not like, you know, a, a Liam Neeson type. I mean, he does have some. I mean, Hans Gruber does get his hands dirty. Not really. Like he doesn't get a into a little bit. No, he doesn't. A little bit. Not at all. A little bit. But he does as the sheriff of Nottingham. I almost said Rottingham. The sheriff <laughs> of Nottingham. He actually has a sword fight with, uh, with. Uh, Kevin Costner. I was going to say Klein. What uh, Kevin McAllister? Kevin McAllister, yes. So, moving on, we get to Tony Shalhoub's character, who is very, for what was going on, very chill and very accepting of what was, what was going on. When you I'm pretty watch sure this, he was what high the entire time. I mean, yeah. maybe not Tony Shalhoub, but probably Tony Shalhoub. Maybe. But his character... Fred Kwan, who played yes. Tech Sergeant Chen. Yeah, he... <laughs> like, everybody's getting, like, enveloped in, like, that weird, viscous goo that allows you to And they're all freaking space. out, and he's just like, that's really cool. He's like, do you guys have change? Like, because he's trying to buy something from the vending machine. And then, like, he shows up, like, a little later than everyone else. A little later than everyone else, like not by much, but like enough to be dramatic. And he's like, that was something, you know, like just. Yeah, well, everyone else is just kind of like, what the fuck happened? What's going on? Like, what? what?" He was fascinated by it versus, you know, everyone else who was kind of scared by it. He really uh, immersed himself in the culture, so to speak. I love his little love story with Laliari, Laliari. Missy Pyle. Missy Pyle. <laughs> Fun fact, there is a drag queen out there inspired by Missy Pyle named Pissy Mile. And uh, she was also... That's a really fun fact. Really good in uh, Big Fish. I liked her in that. 
quite a but bit. But I really liked that. I like that. So the reason why they made her character more prominent was because they realized that Sigourney Weaver was like the only female yes. in the film. So they needed to do something, you know, for for diversity's sake, which I get. But it was really, it was really sweet. I. Um, it, I, it, it turned a little tentacle porn at times. It got a little hentai. Yep. But you know, it's just it's I, called I, hentai, and it's art. <laughs> but I thought it was cute. I kind of, I, I, I think it added something to his character. Yeah, that he was down for freaky squid sex. But, like, he, but he was just out of all of them, he was he was the one who embraced the experience the most. And I think that they needed to do that to kind of set up, like, because he was freaking out at the end, like, when he had to do the transporter thing uh, to save uh, Jason, like, he had to use the, 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 the teleporter. He had to use it. He had to beam him up, Scotty. Um, he couldn't do it. He, could, he was, there was like, oh, it's just the exact same motions that you would do on the show. Like, just remember what you did. You know, like your muscle memory would come back, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, I can't do it. And he looks over and sees her. And he's like, all right, I have a reason to to do this. Like, I got to stop freaking out and mm-hmm. save my my squidums. But I mean, <laughs> Tony Shalhoub is brilliant in pretty much everything he does. Yes. Like he's such a good casting decision, regardless of the casting decision. You know. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have him play Batman, but. Well, <laughs> but you know what? I would watch that. I I, I, would, I would I would I I I am I am the knight. I am, I am vengeance. But it, was, uh, it wasn't as prominent of a character as some of these other characters, but it was still meaningful. It still meant something. Right. Like, I mean, he was still well-known, but not like he's not top billing like Alan Weaver or Rickman. But I w- I'm not even mentioning, you know, wasn't even mentioning that. I was just saying like his character, you know, he wasn't like a main, main character. In the show, he was one of these like side he was characters, Scotty. but he's still yeah, pretty much. He was the he was Scotty. Like you know, we see him talking to the bridge, and like he's just repeating what the other the other Thermians are telling him because it's something that happened on the show at some point. So he's just like, yeah. He goes, what what was it? Oh yeah, the uh, beryllium orb has been damaged, and we need to get a new one. What was it? Oh yeah, there's there's not on the ship. <laughs> like it's just <laughs> like, and he's he's still going along with all of this. Like he's in a dream sequence, even though he is clearly not. So, moving on to the next character, the next character listed on IMDb is if I can go back to it is. Sam Rock- Rockwell. Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Now, he runs the convention that we see at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he was on an episode. He's almost like their handler. Well, he was just running the, the he was running the um 
But it's like they they all know the each MC. other, and it wasn't just from him being a blip on the show. Oh, they didn't episode. remember him at all. Well, I mean, like obviously he remembers them. Well, yeah, because they're huge stars. He just had he was essentially a, what you would call on Star Trek a red shirt. Like it's like okay, the away team will be like these three main characters and Ted from accounting. And then, like, somebody has to die on the away team, and it wasn't going to be Kirk, Spock, or Bones. It was always going to be Ted from Accounting. So he plays Guy Fleegman. But he doesn't get that name until the very end of the film. Well, because they just keep calling him Guy. Right, because he didn't, like, they didn't know his name. Guy Fleegman was his, uh, his character. Right, but his character on the show was referred to as crewman number six. Yeah, which it always bodes well if you're going on an away mission. Crewman so six. He eventually gets an actual title yes. when they, they revive the show at the end. The security guy. Yes, he is security chief Rock I Ingersoll. Rock Ingersoll. Yep. Yep, that sounds about right. But yeah, he, he's just one of those guys who's like just really happy to be there, just happy to be included. Yeah, like he, he like kind of tagged along. Yeah, he was just there when the Thermians came because he's like, hey, I was on the show. I'm part of the show. I, I'm gonna be here. And he mm-hmm. even at some point, at one point in the film, uh, volunteers for a suicide mission because he's like, you know, because they're like, oh. You know, when they're on the, the planet where he ends up, uh, Jason ends up fighting the rock creature, you know, which was parodied fairly well on uh, Futurama. But he, uh, he, uh, they're like, all right, we'll do this thing. It was just like episode 81. He's like, episode 81? That's the episode I was on. I died. And they're like, oh, episode 97. Like, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's like, this is the plan. You know, and. But later on, you know, he he says when they're back on the ship and they're they're having like one of the final confrontations, he, he's like, "Well, I'll go in, I'll do it." You know, I'm supposed to be dead anyways. Like, I'm just I'm just some guy. Like, because he even asked him, he's like, "What's my last name?" They're like, "I don't know," and he's like, "That's the thing." Like, and they give him, like, they give uh, Sam Rockwell's character just the most generic name, guy, you know, which is very similar to crewman number six. Mm-hmm. You know, it's. As generic as you, unless you just called him like person, like is as generic as you can get while still giving him an actual name. Smiley. Yes, Guy Smiley. From Guy Smiley. The, the news anchor from Sesame Street. Guy Incognito, who is Homer's exact duplicate. But again, Sam Rockwell is just absolutely brilliant in everything, everything that he's in. And he brings such a presence. And in this, he was definitely comic relief. Yeah, I've granted a lot of people. I mean, this is, film is hilarious. Oh, yeah. This like, so I can't believe comedy. it took me so long to, to watch it. Well, you're I, not a sci-fi abs- person. But I loved it. Right. Because it was sci-fi, but it wasn't. Well, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I'm trying to introduce you to that I think you'll enjoy, and you've been enjoying it. But, you know, so once upon a time, I wouldn't have. But the fact that, you know, I, I'm watching films now with a slightly more sophisticated palette, um, you know, and, and having more experience, 
doing things, being out there. At uh, conventions. Well, let's just say, like, at conventions and stuff. Obviously, conventions are a huge part of this film. And seeing it, you know, having gone to not necessarily specific fandom-based conventions, but, you know, I've been to several conventions at this point. You know what they're talking about. You know you know these fans. You are these fans. There you are know, people you, who are dedicated to specific fandoms. You know, so it's it's easy to kind of grasp on to, especially this film that has so much heart to it. Yeah, it's it's really nice to see, like, and, and they made a point, I think it was Damon, uh, Damon Lindelof who made the point in the documentary that, you know, this is a show, or it might have been the, the writer whose name, Bob Greenwood, Strongwood, something like that, um, made the point that in 1999, you could have a weird, nerdy character be... You know, like the un the, like the surprising hero, like you know the unexpected hero. It's like, oh, it's so weird that we've got this character who's gonna be, you know, our our heroic guy, and you know, you wouldn't expect that. Now the nerdy characters are Spider Man, Iron Man, you know, Shuri. Like those are your nerdy characters, and you expect those characters to save the day, right? Like it's like, oh, that guy's a super nerd, like. You know, the guy in the chair, like Ned from the Spider-Man movies. Like, You he, know he's going to be key to the superheroes saving the day. Right. You don't look at him like, oh, this guy's just tagging along. Like, he's just sitting in a chair. He's not even doing anything. But he's like, not going to be you, helpful at all. You realize, you know, now the importance of having, you know, every superhero needs a solid backup. Yeah, your guy in the chair. Right. So moving on, we have... Daryl Chill Mitchell, who played Tommy Weber. I loved the concept for this character. So when the the TV series had taken place, he was this kind of like, he was a child. He was a child actor, played by, kicking it back to Disney, played by Corbin Blue from the High School Musical movie. Which I've never seen and don't intend to. Oh, you say that now. I don't intend to. Oh, you say that now. Um... And the reason for that, because the director re- had worked with him before, and uh, uh, Dean uh, Pariseau had worked with him before and really wanted to work with him again and was like, I want this guy in my movie. So they're like, we have to figure out a reason why this dude's like 20 years younger than everyone else in the cast. Mm-hmm. So they're like, all right, you know, he was this super wonderkind pilot. Yeah, he was like a child prodigy on the show. Yeah. And he was the the pilot. He was the And I love who... that the, the the joke is, "Oh, you've grown." Well, no shit. I've grown because that's what people do, but it's just funny because people are so used to seeing him as a child on the show and then going to these conventions, you know, meeting the the aliens they the they mention oh you yeah the termites you know oh you've grown it's like uh, uh, yeah <laughs> yes i have you know it's, it's been one 18 thing, years right you know it's one thing for an adult to age because everyone ages differently so some people don't age much i age like milk but 
you know, for a child, like you're definitely going to see the difference. And I just thought that 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 joke that was made was just I, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. And it was done like so well. It wasn't like, oh, look at you. You've grown. It was just like a statement of fact. Like, Oh, you've grown. You have grown. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just. Uh, and he was great. Because the first thing we get to see, we get to see every one of these characters go through what they were supposed to do on the show. Because like, these aliens obviously thought that they had, they thought they were a real crew. They thought they had right. the knowledge that they were portraying on the show. And everybody, Not a TV show, the documents. The historical documents. Yes. Right. And everybody was just like doing their job. It's like, just do exactly what you did on the show. And what was his name on the show? Like Turbo or something? Lieutenant Laredo. Laredo. Okay. I knew it was just like a single word. I just couldn't remember what it was. Uh, but Turbo makes sense for somebody flying a star a starship. He, um, the first time he's doing it, like Sam Rockwell's kind of giving him shit. And like you see everybody because he's listing to the left and everyone's like leaning to the other side. <laughs> like you see, you see uh, Sigourney and Tim Allen and Alan Rickman, everyone's just kind of like leaning to the right, like that's going to help. And then all of a sudden you hear it like scrape up. Apparently their reaction to that sound is because the director was doing it off camera, like as loud and obnoxious as he could. And it like really grated on their ears, which I thought was just brilliant. Like that's so great. But it's almost like a, like a teenager learning to drive. You know, it's not definitely not perfect the first time. And obviously he didn't know how to handle the spaceship because, I mean, how would you? When was the last time? You know, like, oh, yeah, I parked my spaceship out back. So uh, I I just I, I loved the entire concept of his character, you know, and the fact that he did learn how to drive the spaceship yes. because everything was it was the exact it was specifications m- and he would watch he like there was a scene where they show him watching some of the older shows watching some of the hand movements that he right. made to and then control he was the ship like memorizing yeah he was things. doing it in front of him like he was mirroring it yes now before we go to to the next character i want to just discuss the ship real quick so the ship was called the protector it was uh, the the number on it was the NTE three one two zero NSEA Protector. It is an evolution heavy cruiser that serves as the flagship for the NSEA. It is commanded by Peter Quincy Taggart, and it is Earth's most powerful interstellar spacecraft. Now, the fun thing, because there's so much parody in this movie, and it is clearly a parody of Star Trek. When they were designing creatures and they were designing, sh- and which was Industrial Light and Magic and fucking Stan Winston's studio, which is like, that's where you go when you want xenomorphs and Terminators and Robocop and Star Wars things. Like, so this was huge. Right. It, well, and I think it really added to the authentic feel that this film has. Yes. Because they didn't want it to be cheap, they wanted it to look like this was real. So when they were designing the ship, somebody had the idea to give it the uh, designation NTE, which literally stands for not the Enterprise because it was so similar 
to the design of certain Star Trek ships. So they did that intentionally so they would not get sued, which I thought was brilliant. Now, the next character we have to move on to is Enrico Colantoni as Mathazar. So this is another one of my favorite characters. I think it definitely comes down to both him and Alan Rickman. This character is just so funny. His delivery is perfection. It, it's so bonkers. I love it. And watching the documentary, we find out that when she, when she, when he uh, auditioned, he. Well, I mean, know, he the, did like a normal audition, and the director was like, "Yeah, uh, yeah, you're, okay, thanks. We'll, for don't coming. call us. We'll call you." And as he's leaving, he stops and he's like, "Well, I had this idea that I was gonna do," and the director's like, "Well." What was it? What yeah, were you going to do? And like, he starts doing the voice and the delivery and all that. And they were like, oh, my God, this is it. This is perfect. And he was actually, and we found out this during the documentary, uh, they showed to some of the other people who were auditioning for Thermians, they showed his audition tape and they were like, this is what we're looking for. And he didn't know that at the time. And he's like, oh, I wish I had known that then because I would have asked for more money. More money. <laughs> like, we would have negotiated a better deal because if everyone's copying what I did and I didn't know I had the role yet, then, you know, I should have gotten like a consultant fee almost. But that's just, that's like the, the staple of a brilliant character actor. Somebody who could say, I read the script. I'm auditioning for this role. This is what I think this character is. This is what I think this character sounds like. This is, you know, because obviously Thermians, like there's no such thing as a Thermian. You know, it, it's this really weird alien species that species, species that are they're, tentacle they're cephalopod people. based. Retro octopuses. Yes. But they have the ability to cloak themselves to try to blend in with the human race. And they have the ability to translate their voices. They they do their best to imitate, but because of their their physiology, switching over to... Our physiology, like they can't move the same. Like imagine if suddenly your brain was put into the body of a cat and now you have to figure out how to crawl around on four legs. The first thing you're going to want to do is stand up on your hind legs, but that's not how a cat gets around. Right. It's going to throw you off and you're going to look, even when you're down on all fours walking around, you're going to walk all janky-like. So not only do I think the delivery of the lines were perfect using that kind we of tone of voice. We need your help. <laughs> you are our last hope. But the way that they moved, the way that they walked with like their legs and arms moving like, simultaneously. Instead of the opposite, like your hand swinging, like your left arm and your right leg moving, and they were moving their left arm and their left leg like marionettes. Yes. Yes, and I just thought that was so... I am a puppet. <laughs> it was just so brilliant. Like, how, who comes up with that? How do there you think of no that? There are no strings on me. <laughs> But it makes sense. You know, you see I these... am a real boy. <laughs> Go count in the corner. <laughs> uh, you see, you know, 
what they're basing everything off of is watching the Galaxy Quest television show, the series. Like everything down to the exact detail. Like you see when they defuse the bomb and like all you have to do is hit this blue button and they hit the blue button, but the counter the counter keeps counting down even though they hit the button, but it then stops at one because that's what it happened on the show. always stops at one. Like everything down to the very last detail was a perfect emulation yeah. of, of something from the show. But I just, I loved their interpretation of the human race. I thought it was so endearing. My favorite part where they were trying to really endear themselves to the crew was when they're like, we have replicated meals from your home world. And like they give Alan Rickman these Bugs. fucking bug things. <laughs> it's just like, oh, great. And then well, like, they're like, how Tim is it? Alan's eating steak. Yeah. Like, how is it? And he's just like, just like mother used to make. <laughs> just like, that fucking line was done so well. Like, like it's so perfect. And it's like, here, eat these bugs and twigs. And like, he picks one up on his spoon or whatever. And it like yells at him and dives back into the bowl. <laughs> dives right back into the bowl. Yeah, Tim Allen's like, oh, the steak is so good. And like Sam Rockwell's trying to eat noodles and like apparently he starts strangling on one of them. Like it's so weird. But it's like, oh yeah, we have uh, like the Monte Cristo sandwich is like the most popular thing that they serve in their food replicator area. So. There's a lot more characters to cover, but I kind of just want to briefly well, touch I mean, on. Like, yeah, so he was the uh, Grand Mathazar was the leader of the Thermians. I am the there king. Are a couple of other Thermians that are definitely worth noting, and one is Missy Pyle, Lali, Laliari, Lilu Dallas Multipass. That's it. I love the scene in the car in the limo. <laughs> He's like, you know, does she talk? And they're like, oh, her translator's broken. And then she just starts screeching. And it's just, it's so, it's so funny. Laliari. Laliari. Uh, there's Patrick Breen, who played Quellick. And he's the one who, who died, died at the in, end. Yeah, in uh, Thaw's Hammer. You will be. And Rain opened. Wilson. Who was supposed to have a bigger role, but he decided that uh, he was going to go film some random TV show called Expendables or The Expendables or Expendable or something. If you haven't heard about it, because it never got made. That's why. So, I mean, he ended up being fine. Yeah, he was fish boy. He... He, uh, you know, they say shoot your shot. He shroot his shot. <laughs> so he ended up being okay. He was in a superhero film that's part of a franchise now. You know, shut up, crime. Yeah, Super's a great movie. And it's part of the Brightburn universe. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so he ended up doing fine. Then obviously Missy Pyle, who has been in a ton of stuff. Uh, I do want to... Also, shout out uh, Robin Sachs, who played Saris, the main bad guy. Um, he was also in uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. He does a lot of um, And I really enjoyed the acting. fact that they used 
practical effects and makeup for mm. these characters. There obviously was some uh, CGI because you have oh, to. Oh, I mean, obviously, but for the most part, wherever it was, I don't want to say necessary, wherever they had the ability to use practical effects and makeup they did and the design for the what were they called the bad guys jerks the jerks yes <laughs> i forget the design for the jerk creatures it was a really good design definitely inspired by some insect stuff because like when saris would get really mad like you'd see like those extra appendages stick up on his back you know kind of like the way certain insects will like try to establish dominance by like you know spreading their wings or like spiders wave their arms around things like that. Um, they're definitely reptilian like. I always forget. Yeah, I don't remember what the name of the thing is, and it's totally. But the creature right design now. was excellent. But it's and industrial light and magic and Stan Winston. So you're and it gonna really get great you know stuff. allowed you to get engrossed into the story and these. Jerk creatures were so horrible that, you know, I mean, yes, you were rooting for the heroes from the beginning, but you really found yourself, like, I really found myself rooting for them. Well, they also stood by the tried and true trope of um, the good guys look like us, the bad guys look scary, you know, which you see in a lot of sci-fi and fantasy stuff, um, you know. The bad guys are always ugly. The good guys are always handsome and pretty. And, you know, it's just the way it works. And I really, I know we spoke about Justin Long's character in the beginning, but I really enjoyed the inclusion of the fans of this film. Yeah, there was Jeremy Howard as Kyle and Caitlin Cullum as Caitlin. Uh, Jeremy Howard... Uh, you might know him as Donatello from the new uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Um, and Caitlin Cullum, uh, I don't know what else she's been in. Let me see. Grace Under Fire, that's an old movie. Seventh Heaven, that's an old TV show. Uh, she was in Jug Face, where she played Christy. I haven't seen that. Malcolm in the Middle. So, like, she got a lot of work around that time more than what she's been recently. But, but the the movie wouldn't have been the same without the addition of these characters. Oh yeah, if you didn't include the char- these these nerds because I mean they symbolized they saved the all day. of the, right and they symbolized all of these these nerds, these geeks, the fans, the hardcore the fans, fans from all of these different fandoms, you know, and it's it's true that the the fans save these fandoms. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so in this film they literally saved yeah, like because of their, uh, you know, intense devotion to the uh, to the stories and to the, the 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 show itself, you know, that's how they're able to like they have the blueprints for the ship. So they're like, yeah, turn left here, turn right here. You know, oh, there's a slight drop. Watch out for the uh, smasher thingies and you know. But it was a metaphor for the fact for that the fans are the reason why fandoms survive and the importance of, of fans. Right, and, during the... You know, the, the, the people who go out and spend the money, the people who take the time 
to you know invest themselves into the lore and backstories of of these different fandoms. Right. It's like when they they brought it up I, again. I think it was Damon Lindelof that was like, "There's a reason that there's like a new Star Trek movie every year. Like there's a reason why they continually make Star Wars films. Like in the last what six years, five years, we've had." Six big Star Wars events. You know, we've had obviously the new trilogy, Solo, Rogue One, and The Mandalorian. Like, and we're getting more because the fans drive the experiences. And I really, I, I thought the ending of this movie was just perfect. The fact that the show was picked up, it was renewed again. You know, everyone had the opportunity to reprise their roles. Guy, Sam Rockwell, actually got a role with a name, an actual so, name. So did Liliani. On the billing, yeah, Jane Doe. <laughs> and I just thought that it, it shows how important fans are. And shows, that, I mean, how many TV shows, how many films have received revivals? Futurama. Because, exactly, you know, because of the persistence and insistence of the fans. Right. So I think that's a pretty good spot to uh, kind of wrap things up for mm -hmm. this part of the discussion. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, give you uh, hints and previews as to what's coming down the pike. And, and we have a new battle. Yep, I was just about to say that. but I beat you to it. You did. And we have a voicemail that we received during the show, and we want to get to that. So we will be right back. Greetings, weary adventurer. Do you have a taste for the exotic? Do regular snacks no longer provide the thrill ye seek? Would ye rather eat a codpiece than another boring candy bar? Then it's time for ye to sink your teeth into mythical meats exotic game sticks. Mythical Meats offers a wide variety of exotic flavors based on creatures of legend to give you a snack experience of epic proportions. Like it hot? Try the Spicy Creatures Sample Pack featuring dragon, chupacabra, and werewolf. More in the mood for something a bit milder? Try the Creatures of the Sky Sample Pack with Pegasus, Griffin, and Phoenix. Can't decide on which one you want? Why not try the exotic flavor sample pack featuring all 10 flavors so you can find your favorite? Go to mythicalmeats.com to see the full selection of flavors and place your order. All orders over $49 get free two-day shipping. Mythical Meats exotic game snack sticks. So good, they're legendary. Hi, I'm Richie the Whiz Kid from the Best Darn Diddly Review Show, and you're listening to the Throwdown Thursday Podcast.
And we're back. Um, that was the theme song. And there's a really awesome story behind the theme song. But I highly recommend you get out and check out Never Surrender, a Galaxy Quest documentary. It's from last year. And uh, our good buddy Kyle Kukta from uh, Survival of the Film Freaks was assistant director on that. So definitely check that out because uh, that was clearly a... Uh, a big, a big uh, labor of love, something that I'm sure he enjoyed quite a bit, getting to uh, do some of the coverage for a lot of these uh, interviews. And I don't know exactly who he interviewed, what he did. I didn't talk to him about this. But, I mean, like, they were all pretty prime interviews to get. Yeah, like, even if he was just going around at the conventions doing behind-the-scenes stuff, like, any of this stuff would have been awesome. So, I mean, just to be able to work on a project like this, I'm sure it was pretty great. And going through some of the convention footage on this film, I was actually kind of looking for little things like, was that a convention I was at? <laughs> the Silicon Valley Comic Con. We were not at that one. But I mean, it, but it looks like it looks like any convention right, because they all get held in these nice, nice places. You know, and the cosplay is always perfect. So before we uh, go any further, because this is our show and we got uh, a nice voicemail from our friend, we are going to play uh, Coop's voicemail. So let's uh, check out what's on here. Hello, Throwdown Thursday podcast. It's your old pal Coop. I just uh, heard that you were talking about one of my favorite things, which is the film Galaxy Quest, and I just wanted to make sure to send you something. I know you recently watched the documentary as well, and um, they actually described Galaxy Quest as one of the five perfect films. And uh, I have to say, it's definitely something special. On um, many, uh, many different levels, it probably should not have worked, uh, specifically commercially, because it was uh, marketed as a kid's movie, and it just um, it didn't do well there, but it really strikes a note with everyone I know in my circles who is a really big Trek fan. And as someone who grew up as a really big uh, Star Trek fan, I mean, Star Trek was like church in our house. Every Thursday we would watch uh, The Next Generation, and it was the entire family. So even my sister, and she doesn't even like sci-fi. But um, I, I like to think of Galaxy Quest as the story of a young man named Justin is a Trek nerd that actually helps uh, save the day. Uh, not true because it's just Justin Long, the actor, but still that's um, that's pretty pretty much, uh, you know, it's like a, lo a love letter to the fans of Star Trek, um, allowing them to be so obsessed with something and then actually take that knowledge and put it towards helping to uh, figure out the main problem. And um, I, I think that's a huge part of what Galaxy Quest does is it honors the fans. It, it allows them to be part of something, which is uh, kind of... It didn't happen initially with Star Trek for like a long time and then with the conventions it finally became acceptable because it used to be like, oh, Star Trek nerds and all that. But um, but Galaxy Quest is, is amazing. Um, it's just one of those things where it's like you've got Sigourney Weaver, Sam Rockwell, you've got Monk, you've got uh, Tim Allen. And, and who knew Tim Allen was such a huge sci-fi guy and just the like – the sort of tension that you get between him and Alan Rickman and just everybody else. It's just such a phenomenal movie. And, um, I, I, I mean, I must've seen it about a hundred times. Um, one last thing to say about it is, um, I was maybe about two years ago driving down to Florida to see my dad while he was having open heart surgery. Right. And I get there just in the nick of time, maybe about six o'clock in the morning, right before he goes in to have a quadruple bypass. The last thing I say to my father was, Never give up, never surrender, you know, and he, 
and he says the same thing. Um, he, he says back to me by, by the, the warband's hammer or whatever. <laughs> I forget what it was at, at the moment, but, um, you know, it's just a little movie that has had such a huge impact on our lives. Um, you know, th- thanks guys for listening. And, uh, I, I truly appreciate you covering the show because it's such a near and dear to my heart. Thanks guys. Well, thank you, Coop, first of all, for, uh, you know, being such a loyal friend and a big supporter of the show, we really appreciate everything that you do for us. And thank you for sharing that story. It's always really cool to me when somebody takes a film, whether it be uh, a character or a quote, and turns it into something else. Like, now that's something that you and your dad can share together. And it, it you know meant something to you in that moment and I'm sure it still means something to you I I absolutely love that I also really love it when films don't do well at the box office but then go on to have this cult following and I I think it's 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 better that films from like 20 years ago didn't do well and now have it because if we have stuff today that we're like, oh, this was really great. Like, because it didn't do well, we're not going to get a sequel or a spinoff or anything. Well, no, but I mean, now things are a bit different too with the access to streaming. We have the access to a lot more indie films that we never would have been able to see before. You know, so it's a little different now, but I love it when films that didn't do well at the box office goes on to become this cult classic because of the fans, the drive of the fans. And it shows that, you know, box office projections are not always right. Yeah, it's... Uh, There's you, a lot of that in the movie. Box the office doesn't mean... Right, and, you know, box office doesn't mean anything. You know, think of how many not-so-great films have gone on to make a lot of money, and think about how many really great, just phenomenal films didn't make so much. The Lion King quote unquote live action remake made a billion dollars. And all it was, was the same movie. They changed a few of the actors and that was it. Like they just did it in CGI instead of hand drawn animation. But I think Coop mentioned something, you know, by mentioning, you know, Tim Allen was a huge, is a huge sci-fi nerd. Huge. And, and you wouldn't have thought that, I mean, you know, Buzz Lightyear maybe. But, you know, Tim Allen, you wouldn't... Tim the Tool Man Taylor? Yeah, you wouldn't think that from him. And, you know, obviously Sigourney Weaver, she's sci-fi royalty at this right. point. And two different franchises. You know, and, you know, some of the other, aside from Alan Rickman, who didn't particularly care for the, no, the genre but you know he yes he is an action guy and he's also just a really good actor you know all of the the heart that was put into this film you know not only by the writers and the people behind the scenes but in front of the camera it looked like the cast was having a really good time and when it's supposed to be a fun movie it's supposed to be a comedy it's supposed to be you know light-hearted at times and I'm kind of glad that they went with the PG-13 rating. It was supposed to be a little darker. They even toned it down from that because they made it they wanted a G rating because of how well the Rugrats movie did, which is why 
Because in a PG-13 movie, you can say fuck once. Once. And we see uh, when they come to the smasher piston things in the, at the, in the climax of the film, we see Sigourney Weaver say, oh, well, fuck that. But we hear her say, well, screw this. I kind of, I, I thought that was brilliant, though. I thought that was so much fun. Right, but they did it specifically so they could get the G rating and aim it at kids. Right, and I, I mean, but still, I thought it added to the comedic performance of the, the film. But see, it's, it's like what we see now with some of these Marvel films, which do well as PG-13, but some of these other films, like... Deadpool would Deadpool or Logan have been su- as successful if they were PG thirteen and well, toned down? Here's the thing: Logan isn't meant for kids, right? But Deadpool's humor is. But if you tone Deadpool that, can be, it's but aimed I think at teenagers. I think that things shouldn't be toned down in order to be directed at children. I think it should be up to the parents to decide. You know, is my children mature enough? Can my child handle this subject matter? Because, you know, we see in the documentary that, you know, when they were going around to the convention and interviewing, you know, the actual fans of the film, a lot of them say, you know, it's a family favorite. You know, my ki- yep. myself and my kids, something I can watch with my kids. Yeah, because there's not a lot of innuendo or you anything know, to. But it was also really supposed to be. It. it was supposed to be more graphic. It was supposed to be more violent. Yep. And I'm kind of, I'm almost kind of glad that they didn't go that route because it gives it this overall, overall lightheartedness that I, f- I felt like it would have been overshadowed if it was dark. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it, I, it needed wouldn't have it. had the same effect. Like there's some implied brutality, like the little, little dudes, the little guys eating, eating their, their own, their injured one. Yes. But I mean like that's something that happens in real life, but you know, you know, the, the, I don't know. It's uh I think it would have, it, it could have gone either way, but I think how they handle it, I think made adding for a really great film. Yeah, I, I think if they added too much more violence and gore, it kind of would have. I think uh, it would have taken away from the story. Yeah, and it would have really like clashed with the overall atmosphere of the film. So we have a new battle this week. We do. And when we have a new battle, that means we play the battle theme. So what do we got for a battle this week? So this week we are throwing down the ragtag space crew hullabaloo. We I wanna... came up with that name. <laughs> you, yes, you did. We want to know which team of unsung misfits has what it takes to survive the elements and get home. The sandbox is Cybertron. From the she didn't know where Cybertron was from because she is not a Transformers person but yeah cybertron is the home planet of the autobots and decepticons so you can choose from the protector crew from galaxy quest the planet express crew from futurama 
or the Freedom Crew from Armageddon. Yeah, Armageddon out of here. Um, yeah, so, and we're talking... And you don't want to miss a thing. No. Um, so, for clarity purposes, we are talking, for the Freedom Crew, we are talking the full crew. I know there were two ships that went up there. We're talking the crew of, with Ben Affleck. The, the full crew. The full, like, like including uh, uh, Bruce Willis, you know, like the whole crew. Don't want to close my Steven eyes. Steven Tyler, everybody's going to go. I don't want to fall um, And for I'm Planet Express, full, full crew. Zoidberg, Hermes, Professor, not just Bender, Leela, and Fry, full crew. Full crew. So Amy... Amy, Leela, Bender, Fry, Professor, Zoidberg, Hermes, Dwight. I almost called him Squidward. I was like, that's not nope. right. He's, he's not Squidward. Dwight, Scruffy, the janitor, and uh, Qbert. Oh, and Nibbler. And Nibbler. Horse Nibbler. So that's uh, that's the battle that'll be going up uh, soon. Momentarily. And uh, that's pretty much all we got. Uh, I did want to point out one thing that I totally forgot, but Coop... Coop's email uh, voicemail reminded me. Um, a lot of people refer to this this film as the best or the second best Star Trek movie, which I think is fair because uh, that's essentially what it is. So, before we go, we do have something that we haven't done in a while. Ashes has a wine to talk about. So I recently purchased two wines that I haven't tried before in hopes that maybe one of them would be worth sharing with you guys on the show and come to find out they're both worth sharing on the show. So I will talk about one this week and one next week. And uh, just a heads up, next week may include a Chardonnay. Because remember, at the beginning of the year, I'm trying to. I'm on the. I'm on the quest for the butteriest Chardonnay, and buttery I, quest. The buttery quest. I really like butter. Um, so that quest has kind of been on hiatus because I've been drinking a lot of comfort wines recently, uh, wines from a box because it's convenient and wines that I've had before, wines that I like. So I'm um, trying to branch out again, drink some wines that I have not tried before. And yeah, so this week I am talking about Robert Mondavi. It's from his private selection. Bobby Moe. Bobby Moe, yes. Friends call him Bomo. Probably not, but uh, Robert Mondavi it's their private selection. It's a Merlot, but it's aged in rum barrels. Now, typically, red wines that are aged in liquor barrels are aged in barrels that have more of a, a spice to it. So, like a whiskey. You know, I've had red wines aged in bourbon barrels, whiskey barrels, something that has more of like a... A stronger, just spice to it that really lends itself well to the dryness and you know the the berryness of these red wines. 
But this wine was aged in rum barrels and it wasn't a spiced rum. It's a your your, your typical run-of-the-mill white rum. And I'm just going to read the back of the label for you guys. So it says, This limited-release rum barrel-aged Merlot is an unconventional take on our traditional Merlot. Our coastal California vineyards deliver jammy flavors of plum and blueberry to the wine. A select portion of the blend is then aged in rum barrels, which adds complex nuances of toasted coconut, molasses, and rich vanilla. So, like I said, typically if they're aged in rum barrels, it's a spiced rum. It adds a nice spiced aspect to it because, you know, and sometimes red wine has like a like a peppery aftertaste to it. So, you know, aging it in like a whiskey barrel that has the spice to it, you know, it just, it just all lends itself really well. So I was very intrigued by the fact that this wine, this, you know, really, and, and, and the front of the palate, it's definitely behaves as your typical run of the mill Merlot, a good Merlot, but definitely a Merlot true and true. It's really jammy. You can taste the the, the, the berries on the front of the palate and then the flavors hit on the back of the palate. And that's when you get the toasted coconut and the molasses, like that deep richness of molasses mixed with the lightness of that, the vanilla. It is so good. It's n- unexpected and it actually works. Like it, it was really good. So I had a sip of it. Uh, actually, well, I had more than a sip. Bottle's I gone. had a few sips of it just immediately from the from the bottle. But then I let it breathe a little bit and letting it breathe really lets the rum flavors shine through. So you still get the, the jamminess of the berries on the front of the palate, but letting it breathe for a little bit it, it it really accentuates the the coconut and the the vanilla and the molasses at the back of the palate. So it is really good. And I feel like, you know, typically when you think of summer wines, you don't think of reds unless it's a sangria or something, you know, lighter and fruitier because it's summer, you're not looking for stuff that's super heavy. But I feel like this could be a really good summer wine because of the fact that it's aged in the white rum barrels that give you like the coconut flavor, you know, almost adds like a little bit of a nuttiness to it, which is nice. You put the wine in the coconut. You put the wine in the coconut and you drink it all up. So I have a science fact. Science! And my science fact for today is uh, it actually comes from a, a documentary I watched on Amazon Prime the other day called The Jupiter Enigma. And in it had one of the coolest computer simulations I have ever seen, and that was the creation of Earth's moon. Now, if you check out our friends over at Paranormal Punchers, they did an episode this week about the hollow moon theory, which is really cool, very interesting. There's a lot of backside of the moon jokes and probing the backside of the moon, so uh, definitely check that out. Because uh, those guys did a great job, and uh, it was a really good episode. Very, uh, very interesting topic as well. But in the documentary, there is, uh, like I said, the computer simulation, and it shows how the moon was created. And I find this to be utterly fascinating. So 
There was a Mars-sized planet that was on a collision course with Earth because as Jupiter was forming, it went towards the sun and it backed out away from the sun, like all the different gravities affecting it. It's just, it's brilliant to watch and it's so, so interesting and I, I highly recommend it. But there was an, uh, a Mars-sized planet called Thea that crashed into Earth. Earth absorbed most of that uh debris and most of the matter that uh you know kind of exploded off of thea because as the larger faster moving object um the earth absorbed the impact and thea was utterly destroyed so a lot of that um enveloped the earth and kind of uh, some of it broke away but was still held in earth's gravity and as you know millions of years passed some of the debris slowly like would form a ring around earth and some of it got sucked out and some of it got uh you know uh, stuck to this large mass which would end up becoming the moon and the moon is uh it doesn't rotate the way the earth does you know like there's no day night cycle really uh but what it is is it's called tidally locked and there are planets uh that we have discovered that are tidally locked where the side facing the sun is super hot, like hundreds and hundreds of degrees Celsius, if not hotter. But the opposite side of the planet, the back side of the planet that is not facing the sun because the planet doesn't rotate. One face is always, you know, facing the sun. One is always facing away. Um, it's hundreds of degrees below zero. It's, so create like there's no like there's no uh what they call a goldilocks zone where it's just right it's either way too hot or way too cold so i thought that was really cool check out the jupiter enigma on amazon prime i really enjoyed it and the moon is also made of cheese no we all know the moon is not made of green cheese but what if it were made of barbecue spare ribs would you eat it then I know I would. Heck, I'd have seconds. Then I'd polish it off with a nice, cool Budweiser. Hey! hey. <laughs> What's your favorite planet? Mine's the sun. I like it because it's like the king of planets. We're going to have to do a Harry Carey episode at some point. Um, but uh, My friends call me Whiskers because I'm curious like a cat. I'm curious like a cat. That's why my friends call me Whiskers. I guess I'm just a warrior. That's why my friends call me Whiskers. Hi! <laughs> oh, I could do that all night. But it's already and after midnight. And you have. Uh, so... It's already after midnight. so we And we need to get this episode uploaded. And get to sleep. So uh, we've got some good stuff coming down the pipe for you. Um, I'm hoping to introduce Ash to a few more new movies. That, well, new to her that she hasn't seen. Uh, we have a couple in the bank, like you know, V for Vendetta we just did last week. She had never seen before. This one she had never seen before. We just watched Reign of Fire, which she had never seen mm, before. That was really good, too. I loved that. Reign of Fire was so good. Like, I'm... I'm trying to keep this streak going where, like, I have her watch movies she's never seen before, and she's like, okay, these are really good. Like, it started with Pacific Rim. I don't think I've had you watch a movie you've never seen, and then you were like, meh. 
But I mean, there are some that you've suggested, and I've been like really hesitant. Eh. Like Pacific Rim took you five years to watch. Pacific Rim job did take me a while to watch, but I did love it. Yes, I thought it was great. And we did a couple of episodes. It just uh, Alba we did one episode is on perfection. That. So we are going to, uh, you know, we'll see what's going on. And uh, we have decided that our trivia contest is going to be. Saturday, June twenty seventh, uh, probably around seven thirty, eight o'clock. We're going to link up. We will Eastern provide links. time. Yep, that is Eastern time. Um, the official name for this event is the Patsy the Angry Nerds Trivia, trivia Throwdown. Throwdown. Yes. So I will send out uh, event links. Um, I'm pretty sure I have the. Uh, so we're trying to get all the. Bugs I'm pretty sure I have it figured out from uh, last time, so people don't have an issue with being blocked be from comment. answering. Yeah. And people will be able to comment and get their we're working answers. Working on some stuff. We have a lot of prizes. A lot of prizes uh, in the works right the, now. Uh, the Jason Voorhees eight-bit Nintendo Funko Pop, like he's the purple and green. We have a Bloody Hannibal Lecter Funko. We have the Walmart-exclusive Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth Shatterer. We have uh, the Alien Quadrilogy Blu-ray set. Uh, and there's going to be more stuff added. We also just got in the Funko Prime uh, DC Primal Age figures of King Shark and Green Lantern. So we're going to be giving those away. There's going to be some books as well um, and probably a couple more movies. And um, we're going to do something interesting for how you win your prizes. And I'll get into it another time because it's late. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. There will be a $5 entry fee because there's a lot more prizes this time. And we are buying them all with our money. So we're trying to recoup a little bit of that. But I guarantee it's going to be worth it. Oh, and I if have you some win, great you are going questions. to win well over your your. You will $5 definitely win entry. more than five dollars, yes. and there's going to be a lot of winners. Like we're not just going to have like a couple of you know places where it's like, oh, we have twenty things, and whoever wins gets all of it. No, we're going to spread spread mm -hmm. the wealth out, and like last time, everybody who enters gets entered in. Entered to win a Throwdown mm -hmm. Thursday prize pack, which consists of a T-shirt and a face mask. So, with that being said, we, we will, will see, see you, you next, next Thursday. Next Thursday. Oh my god! <laughs> see you next Tuesday, and then Thursday. Never give up and never surrender by Molnir's hammer. Avenge something. We need your help. Clearly, because we don't know what day the show comes out. <laughs> it's called Throw Down Thursday. Throw Down but, uh, Tuesday. Hey. Mm. You are our only hope. <laughs>